Shalom, everyone. This is Zion Hebraic Congregation with me, Luke Tanner. This week's Shabbat message is by my dad, Warren Tanner. Uh, the title it is, of it is Abraham is the Key. Uh, feel free to check us out on our website, zionhebraiccongregation.com. There you will find archived Shabbat messages as well as blog posts by my dad that he puts out weekly. You can subscribe to those in the little email subscription box. Uh, you'll also find there links to our show's social media accounts, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We put up stuff there weekly, sometimes daily, and uh, you can also sh- subscribe to our uh, messages on your favorite podcast platform provider, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, whatever else there is out there on the interwebs. The music that we have is by my buddy Evan Shaw. You can find him at evanshawmusic.com. Enjoy. Hey, mighty warriors arise, yeah. Freedom does lie only away. For soon is the day when we see your face on the mount of your grace and all right, turn to Galatians chapter 3, please. So, for those who are regular followers of my blog, <laughs> um, I've been in Galatians and I've written a couple blogs on this thing of the Torah, the law. Um, is it done away with or not basically being the theme and so I'm still in Galatians in my own reading this is probably I think my fourth time just going going and going and probably I've read it more than that because I stop in the chapters and read and read and read and read so it's been a blessing for me personally on a personal level to just I didn't set out to quote tackle the book of Galatians but you know, as I said before, Galatians is one of those books, at least for me, it's like Romans, Galatians, Ephesians. They're very theological in nature in, at times. And especially Galatians. Galatians seems to be full of, uh, what do you call them, landmines for us in the Messianic movement because there's so many verses that it makes it sound like Paul's done away with the Torah. Yeshua did away with the Torah. You don't have to do Torah. And, and so Paul is always used, and, and lots of times the book of Galatians, to point to the fact that the Torah has been done away with. And, you know, I don't know how you are in your reading, but I have to admit, as, uh, until basically going through Galatians this, this last time, several times, when I hit these verses, it's kind of like, oh, oh yeah, oh, oh, what's the answer to that? And if you've talked to any people who are Christians about this thing with the, the Torah and the law, and they think we're, we're you know, heretics, I've been called anyway, and um, back under the law and all that stuff. And the, lots of times the book of Galatians is used. And so, you know, I, for me, it was like when I finally made my way to Galatians, which takes forever, I just start Genesis and work my way through, and it takes however long it takes. It's taken forever now. So when I finally got to Galatians, I thought, you know, I'm going to kind of sit here a little bit and see what happens and, and ask the Lord for, you know, special help and understanding, not that I'm going to see anything new, but what's, what is there? And, 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 and how, 
how has it, if it has been, been skewed? You know, how is it that Paul in the book of Galatians is used in such a way to turn everything, in my opinion, 180 degrees from where it should be? So I, I spoke last week on, or the last time on Galatians, and this will be, I think, my last time. But I want to focus in on Galatians 3 today. Um, and I'm going to try to get through this without getting bogged down. Um, and so if you would just bear with me. So as far as a title or a way to think of it, I want us to think about this whole Torah law, done away, not done away with, how do we answer it thing like this? Abraham is the key. He's the key. He's the key to everything. And I mean everything other than Yeshua. You know what I mean. We owe a humongous debt of appreciation to Abraham. And in my estimation, it not done, it's not done on purpose, but Abraham is just kind of, yes, he's important, but he doesn't, I don't think, get highlighted enough at all. And I don't think there's enough emphasis laid upon the importance of Abraham to everything. And, you know, to just highlight that, if I can get to it, I find it interesting that the genealogy in Matthew goes like this. First verse, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, that should be significant. And I'm not saying it's not to you, and usually I'm the last one to come to the party anyway on this stuff. So, but in going through Galatians 3, if, if you've ever read through Galatians, which I'm, I'm assuming you have, all of a sudden it's like Abraham pops into the narrative out of nowhere. So you make it in the first chapter, the second chapter, you're breezing along in chapter three, then wham, all of a sudden you're hit with Abraham and he's a central figure. And then he's mentioned again in chapter four, but it's kind of like you're going along, boosh, we're, we're, we're smacked in the face with Abraham. Well, why? Why does Paul spend so much time in this topic of dealing with the Judaizers and those that were trying to get the believers to be circumcised and come back under the law in the wrong way? Where does Abraham fit into all of this and why and how central and key and important is he? He's everything. Everything. Especially in relation to you know, is the law done away with or not? <laughs> you know, of course it's not. But we need a perspective. And Abraham is, it, for me, it was like, ah, the lock just opened up when I saw, quote unquote, what I want to give you. All right, so we're going to just give you a little introduction. I'm going to break down the chapter in an outline, I'm going to break down verses 19 to the end of the chapter as an outline. Then I'm going to try to just do one point in the outline and call it quits, all right, because I will go forever and I've already gone long enough and I haven't even said anything. So 
Abraham, well, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you bless. I ask that you'll help me to be able to communicate what's going on in my head and, and get it out through my vocal cords and into the heart and heads of those that are listening. I pray that you'll just help me because I think this is so vitally important. May this be a time of blessing. And, and I ask, Father, that ultimately Yeshua will be uplifted and exalted and that we'll have a greater hunger in our hearts to just feast every day in your word and see the wonderful things that you still have in it for us. In Yeshua's name, amen. All right, now, a couple things that are interesting. Abraham is mentioned eight times in Galatians 3, one time in chapter 4. See, as I was going through one of the times, it seemed like certain words kept popping up. So Abraham, just poof, chapter 3, uh, eight times, chapter 4, once. Faith in chapter 3 is mentioned 14 times. I thought that was significant. So now we have Abraham and faith linked up. Then the word promise or promises is used eight times in chapter three and twice in chapter four. So Abraham is a key word, faith is a key word, and promise is a key word. Those are like, you know, for you women who make stuff, there's like a binder that somehow, and I don't know what I'm talking about here, but it kind of helps everything to stick. These words, Abraham, faith, and promise, or promises, are like the binders to this whole thing. These are the key words that pop up, and they're not by accident. So, just a few things that I, I want to just say, then we'll get into this. We need to remember that the book of Galatians, and Paul is dealing with what I call an, an, an antagonist. It's an antagonist, not just one person, but it could be. Because it's interesting, oh gosh, this is when I just wish Judy wasn't here so I could use the language that I want to. But Paul says, I just wish they would castrate themselves. You know, the antagonist, if it's one guy or all of them. But that's what he says, cut themselves off, castrate. And then, I'm going to say it anyway, Judy, just don't get mad at me. When, when he says twice, let them be anathema. It means eternally damned, or in my parlance, just go to hell, will you? I mean, that's really, it's not that way, but he is so done with everything. And so there's this antagonist. Why? Because eternal lives are in jeopardy here. And these Judaizers are trying to undo everything Paul did and rip these people's new faith right out of their hearts and lives for their own selfish gains and purposes. Money. They want followers. So I just have a little brief note on how do you, so what's a Judaizer? Uh, this is from Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology. There's a whole lot. I'll just give you a paragraph. The term Judaizer has come to be used in theological parlance to describe the opponents of Paul and Barnabas at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 and those who sought to preach another gospel in the churches of Galatia. In this sense, Judaizers refer to Jewish Christians who sought to induce Gentiles to observe Jewish religious customs. 
that is, to Judaize. It appears that these individuals agreed with much of the apostolic proclamation of salvation, but sought to regulate the admission of Gentiles into the covenant people of God through circumcision and the keeping of the ceremonial law. Insisting that unless you aren't circumcised, you cannot be saved, Acts 15.1. These believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees posed a serious threat to the gospel of grace and the universality of the Christian mission. So they're trying to get them under law. It's, it's, you could almost, I'm talking off the top of my head because I haven't thought about saying this, but you could almost say that Christianity is the inverse of that. Judaizers are trying to get people back under the law for, for nefarious purposes. Well, Christianity has tried to get people out from under the law as they see it, to not be Torah observant, for their own nefarious, though it's maybe not as ugly, nefarious purposes. You know, if you, if you keep Christmas, let's do it this way. If you don't have, if you're going to celebrate biblical things, if you don't have Christmas and Easter, then we're just left with the Jewish stuff. And so the Catholic Church, in its great wisdom, and it was, only not so good, comes along and, and changes it, and we, now we have these other ones. Why? Because we don't want to be connected to that Jewish stuff anymore. It's so interesting. It's built into our DNA almost, and we don't do it even as Christians. There's this negativity, even if you think about Jewish people. It, there's, right? There's, we talked about it as soon as we, when, when we were in Arizona thinking about getting into this, I said to look, I don't know if you remember, I said, I don't even like Jews. You know? and, and I didn't mean it with that intensity, because I don't mean that, but I grew up with, in my family, that Jews were bad. You know, the, even, even when my dad died, the people that he worked for for over 40 years sent him some less than, I thought, adequate, my mother too, and we're sitting at the table after the funeral. She's saying, those Jews, those cheap Jews, he worked for, he father worked for them for 40 years, and this is all he can, you know, I grew up with hearing that sort of talk. The Jews were just like, ah, stay away from them. Of course, then I get saved, that was bad enough. Then I, I start wearing these tassels and junk. My mother didn't know what to think. But anyway, we, we have to get away from this mindset of, I'm not saying go back and be Jewish, but when I say Jewish, there's biblical holidays we're supposed to follow, and we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. So Christianity has, has done almost the same thing in the inverse of what these Judaizers are doing. Judaizers saying, let's get them back in. They're getting too free. We're going to lose control. Let's get them back in. Well, Christianity says, no, we're free. Let's not go back into that at all. And you become a problem. All right, I said way more than I want to say for that. All right, now. Let's get started on chapter 3. First, a couple things. I want to call our attention to two verses. First off, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? Now, I don't go looking for stuff like this, and I didn't realize what I'm going to tell you until just a few weeks ago. That section, and I don't know what translation you have, uh, that ye should not obey the truth, that's not 
in any new translation since the Westcott and Hort translations. Now, I don't know what translation you have, but all the major ones, I've checked, I've had them, but I didn't, I've used them, except for like the New King James and the Hebrew name version. All the other ones leave out that section there. But interestingly, it's in every translation from Wycliffe 1382, Tyndale 1534, Matthews 1537, Great Bible 1539, Geneva Bible 1560, Bishop's Bible 1568, Young's literal translation 1862. But gone since the Westcott and Hort text. I just find stuff like that interesting. And there is not one modern new translation other than King James or Hebrew name version of the biggies that has that in there. Also interesting, I'm just throwing this out, do with it what you want, but uh, verse 17, it says, And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, and then it goes on, the in Christ is gone. The in Christ is gone. In all of the new ones, except for the New King James and the Hebrew name version. And, and that is interesting because that's kind of that verse. If Christ is in that verse, we have a problem. Christianity has a problem. Because in this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the Torah, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should be make the promise of none effect. I just think that's interesting. Now that's in every translation that I just mentioned to you except for the Wycliffe in 1382. So I don't know. I, I, and so my thought was, man, this is me. If you're not a King James or a Texas Receptus, it does, I'm not fighting the issue, it doesn't matter. But, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? And then the next words aren't there. I got, I got to think, man, we're still being bewitched. We're still being bewitched. We've been told after, I can't, I can't tell, from 1382 to 1862, that's a lot of years. And then since 1898 or whenever Westcott and Hort came along, throw it out. Bewitched means to cast an evil spell on someone. Paul is thus saying that the only way to account for their theological deception is by malicious magic. So my thought, magicians use, among other things, sleight of hand and or deception. The Judaizers are so intent on drawing people after them and their teachings that they used whatever means was necessary. So leave the translation thing aside. That's just irrelevant to everything. But I just thought, man, we're still being bewitched. However, Paul is saying to these Galatians, once we get into it, what the heck happened to you guys? It's just like you've been cast under a spell. It, you know, his, his head is spinning. He doesn't understand what's happened to these people. Everything was going fine. He goes away and starts hearing his stuff. And now he has to write and say, who has put a, cast you under a magical spell. What has happened? That's the only way Paul is saying, I can understand in my head what the heck has happened to you guys. You were running well. What happened? Who, who turned you? So we have also been bewitched in relation to the teaching that the law was done away with in Christ, and therefore we don't need to observe any of it. It's okay to keep, quote, the moral aspects, but the rest isn't necessary. We've been bewitched. I don't know. That's the best way I know how to say it. We've been bewitched. I, you know, we have. Growing up in Christianity, 
I mean, I preached for my, you know, I've been in the ministry basically since out of college. <sighs> but always wondered, well, wait a minute here, has it been done away with or not? So I put out a challenge in my blog. All right, you, they say it's split up into three things, the moral, the legal, and, oh, I forget the other one. What is it? Ceremonial, right? Moral, legal, ceremonial. That sounds great, right? Ever try to parse that out? I, I, I start now saying to people, yeah, we only have to keep the moral. That other, you know, because, I said, how do you go back into the Old Testament? Sort out for me those three things in a nice, I want a PowerPoint. You can't. I've tried to do it. When I was in the ministry, I tried to do it. There is so much interconnected and entwined. You start pulling on any one of those threads, it all comes tumbling down. And we've, we've learned to say things that nobody thinks through. We teach things that nobody has put to the test. There is no three-part division of the law. That's a misnomer. That's a lie. <laughs> Somebody's bewitching us. And it makes me, well, one, but it also is very disheartening because we, we're dealing with an eternal book inspired by God, and, and we cannot be so casual and cavalier in how we treat this stuff. And if we're going to start throwing out things, as I did in the ministry, I'm guilty, I'm pointing fingers at myself, we need to know what we're talking about. So, a uh, couple more thoughts. We're not, I don't even know if we might just do this. I don't know. All right, so I have a few notes that I came up with. And I'm just going to read these because I want you, if nothing else, to start thinking and start thinking about why we believed what we have for all these years. Now we're saying we believe something different. One of my daughters, well, you know, one that's not here, um, said rightfully so. Well, Dad, we grew up in, in your house. She, didn't say, she wasn't saying this meanly at all. It was in a sense of really almost not an anxiety, but an anxiety about considering where we are now. She said, Dad, we grew up all these years in your church and you preached and we were right. Now, after all those years, Dad, you're saying we weren't exactly right. Now, Dad, if I get on board with this, how do I not know that later on you're going to say, oh, we weren't quite right there either. You know, we're, we're dealing with stuff that is very important, and we need to have answers for what we're saying we're doing now. We can't coast along with sort of this is what I think we believe, but no, ask my husband. He may be able to tell you. And the husband, no, talk to, the, talk to Luke. He has the answers. We, we don't have that luxury anymore, folks. We don't. This is really important stuff, especially as we're getting to the end of stuff. So I want us to see the importance of what I'm talking about. It's, it's vitally important. All right, so a few more notes, not mine. Uh, one, for, I, this King James Study Bible that I would, I'll tell you at some time the story about how this popped into my life. And I'm not sold on all the notes, believe me. It's no friend to us. But it has some, said some good things. 
Um, interesting now. Okay, we're talking here in chapter three, in, in chapter two leading into this, this connection of the Abrahamic covenant and the Torah, okay? We're, we're coming to this connection. These two are like, they've melded now. And Paul's gonna talk about the Abrahamic covenant and, 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 and the Torah, the Mount Sinai covenant, if you wanna call it that. Now, just prior to the covenant with Abraham, what, what did she say? Oh, <laughs> just prior to the covenant with Abraham, Abraham had believed in Yehovah and Yehovah counted, counted it to him for righteousness. And that's my summation of this note I want to give you now from Genesis 15, 6. This study Bible says, the fact, this is, I hadn't thought about it like this. The fact that Abraham was justified by God for years before he was circumcised is the basis for Paul's argument in Romans 4, 9 through 12 and also in Galatians that faith, not works, i.e. circumcision, is the means of our justification. Therefore, the Old Testament as well as the New Testament teaches salvation by faith, not works. It's like, do you guys even know what you just said there? Do you guys not even know what you just said? That's perfect! Now, Paul, and, and I never thought about it in the timeline. I'm ignorant of a lot of the Old Testament. So I've read it, read it, read it, but I'm ignorant of, of having this ready base of knowledge like Paul is expecting his people to know. I don't have that ready aspect of knowledge. And I never put together that Paul is dealing with the Judaizers who are wanting these people to come back under the law so that they, and Paul talks about it, so that they could have power over them. And how do they do that? Through circumcision, right? Through circumcision. That's the mechanism that they're saying, get circumcised, everything's fine. Okay. Paul is trying to say, as he talks to these Galatians and, and squares off with the Judaizers, don't you even know your own scriptures? And I'm sitting there saying, no, I don't. Paul... Uh, Abraham was circumcised 14 years before he was saved. Paul's saying circumcision has nothing to do with salvation. Proof point, Abraham. See, Paul is pulling out the big guns here. He, he, is, he just said, oh, it's just wonderful, especially the way he ends it. Listen, he, I, I, my body said, basically Paul says, Put up or shut up. I have marks all over my body for what I've done for Christ. Where are your marks? And as a matter of fact, you don't even talk about the cross because you're afraid of persecution. I glory in the cross. Oh, it is just so good. So, you know, Paul is pulling out all the stops and he's saying, you guys, Abraham, who wasn't a Jew anyway, uh, he, he was circumcised, uh, uh, what, whatever I just said, I don't even remember. I just, he was justified by God 14 years before he was circumcised. And so they say, rightly so, the Old Testament as well as the New Testament teaches salvation by faith, not works. I, I can't recall, I'm, maybe I missed it in Bible college, other pastors, I, you know, 
we're more the law is works, the Old Testament's work, the New Testament is grace. But it's not that split. All right, another note from uh, Galatians, my Galatians 3.17. Galatians 3, this is a very good note. Uh, where verse uh, 17 says, what? Oh yeah, we've already looked at it. And this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul. That verse is so important. It cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. It's like a tongue twister, and that's why we don't even understand what that verse is saying lots of times. But it, it, So here's a good note. They say, Paul's point is this. If a human will, you know, the will, will and testimony, if a human will, once confirmed, cannot be altered, verse 15 is telling us that, how much less will the divine covenant be changed, Abrahamic covenant, 430 years after its ratification by God? The Abrahamic covenant promised justification by faith. In the 430 years between the giving of the covenant and the law's appearance, God justified man by faith. So from Abraham to when you get to the Torah being given, man is justified by faith for that whole 430 years. It lasts a long time. Our country's not old, but it's old. I mean, how old is our country now? What year are we? 200 something years, right? So 430 years, you know, we, we, I don't know about you, but oh yeah, 430 years, what's that mean? I try to put it in a timeline or some way to understand, that's a long time. So between the covenant of Abraham and the Torah appears, boosh, they're being saved by grace. It's a good note. In the 430 years between the giving of the covenant and the law's appearance, God justified man by faith. When the law, this is still them, when the law, Torah, appeared, it did not, indeed it could not, void this principle of justification by faith. i got to point to all this, so you're going to have to follow me. Had it done so, the law would have made God's promise of no effect. All right, what's going on here? The Abrahamic covenant is still... In effect, when the Torah came, it did not do away with the Abrahamic covenant. So the Abrahamic covenant is still there, kind of behind the scenes, at least in our understanding. But the Abrahamic covenant is still effective. It's still effective now. But we also have the Torah. And we're saying the Torah is still in effect now. Okay, ha, what's going on here? That's the key to it all. You've got to follow me. I hope I'm, I can make this. All right, my note here. Justification slash salvation has always been by grace through faith. That did not change when the people of God arrived at Sinai. The law of Torah did not nullify the Abrahamic covenant. It was still in existence then, and the Abrahamic covenant is still in existence now. 
And Paul is saying to the Galatians, the Abrahamic covenant is still in existence, people. What are you going to do with it? That's the whole point of bringing up Abraham. He's not just some nice figure to, to just talk about. There's a reason Abraham is still important. There's a reason why Paul is using Abraham to tell the Galatians and the Judaizers, you have it wrong. Now, we have the Abrahamic covenant still in existence, and now we have the Torah in existence. How do these mix? All right, so the law did not nullify the Abrahamic covenant. It was still in existence then, it's still in existence now, I say. That's the whole point. The Abrahamic covenant was in effect before and during the land, tabernacle, temple periods. The Abrahamic covenant was in effect before and during, before, my point, but during, the land, when they're in the land, then the, ta uh, the tabernacle and temple periods. And most importantly for us, outside the land, the Abrahamic covenant is in effect now. Why? Oh, I got to get to the end. But so what does that mean? Paul is saying salvation is not connected. I got to be careful I say this because I don't mean how it's going to sound. But you're going to have to agree. Salvation is not connected to what goes on in the temple. It did at that time, but we're now in the diaspora. If we are dependent upon the law, and pipe in any time here because I'm treading in new territory. Huh? I forgot what I was going to say. What was I even saying just then? Yeah, it, don't, don't misunderstand what I'm going to say. Please follow me, because, yes, it was. I understand. But we're in the diaspora now. No temple. No priesthood. No uh, God being sovereign. Ooh, we have a problem, maybe. No more sacrifices, no more priests. We can't do what the Bible says. Oh, I know I'm probably not doing a good job, but the beauty of this, folks, oh, when it's hit me and it's so new I can't get it across, but the beauty is... So then you have the Abrahamic covenant, the Torah. Now we have Yeshua. Why did he come? when he came what did he accomplish when he came how does it fit with everything that came before him and now everything after him before the land during the land after the land do we have three jesuses oh the jesus then the jesus in the torah in the land the jesus outside the land do we have the abrahamic covenant there the the the, the law there and now jesus came and did away with the law and we don't really need the abrahamic covenant because we're going to talk about that anyway do you understand what this doesn't make sense we don't have this disjointed segmented book so is this making sense so far am i doing okay 
you kind of have that look, I don't know. Okay, so, Yeshua, so why did Yeshua come? Yeshua came so that he could, among other things, fulfill the types, figures, reality of temple life, which could not possibly or adequately be practiced outside the land. You have the Abrahamic covenant, people are getting saved by grace. You have the Torah, because why do we even have the Torah? God's people are coming out of Egypt where they had law. Now they're going to be their own people, nation, headed up by God. Every people group has to have law. So God gives them law to function as a people group. But Peter says, now you guys in the diaspora, you're a royal, what's he say? But you are a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people owned by God. So, oh, uh, I get all twisted in my head. So, but then Yeshua comes along and he fulfills all that. Why? Because we've been living outside the land just like before the temple period. We're outside the land with no temple. We're outside the land with no priesthood. How are now the Gentiles going to be saved if they have to come back under the law, which they don't have? How many, you know, we didn't grow up in the synagogue, most of us Gentiles, and even if you did, I wouldn't have helped, but we didn't grow up in the land under a theocracy where you were taught the Torah from day one, where you were immersed in the daily activities of temple life and everything that it focused on, and you went up for the, uh, the feast three times a year, you know, and then all the other feasts, and your life was regulated by the moon and everything. You were just immersed in all of that. But the Gentiles weren't. Now, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. Why? Because they don't know a bunch of stuff. And so Yeshua comes because he knows that Jerusalem is going to be sacked, the temple is going to be destroyed, it's at the proper time, at the due time, because it was going to go outside the land until our lifetime. But it's going to be outside the land. How do you get saved if it's not by keeping the, uh, the, 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 uh, uh, the Torah? How do you, you know, you mean you have to be circumcised to be saved? Well, if that's the case, not so much now, but, you know, in America, most boys are circumcised when they're born. Are they all saved? You know, that's the only way we know about circumcision. We're not saved by any of that stuff. We're saved by grace through faith. And now we're living outside the land. We're claiming you're not saved by the Torah, but yet we're saying we still keep the Torah as much as we can. Well, that's confusing to people. Okay, you're saved by grace through faith, but you still keep these feasts, these festivals, and you do all this stuff, and how come, and you don't eat this, and you do just what the Jews do? Well, what's the answer to this stuff? We are saved by grace through faith, just like Father Abraham was. He's our father, and we're saved by grace through faith, just like he was 14 years before he was circumcised. We're saved by grace through faith while the Torah was in the land in existence with a sovereign God heading up everything. And, and I'm losing my train of thought, but anyway, oh, we're saved by grace through faith now outside the land for the last 2,000 years. That's the message of Abraham, by grace through faith. Now, we come along 
as a, as a messianics, and I believe God is raising us up, and saying, yes, we, we keep this, we keep that. So people start peppering you. So when are you going to stone your kids? You know, that's one of the first things you heard. Well, what about your wife? She has a menstrual cycle. She can't go up to the temple. What about that? See, you can't do that. You can't do this. You can't do that. You can't do that. Oh, you want to pick the food, this, these funny strings and the easy things. Well, what's the answer to everything else? We're outside the land. And you know what? Yeshua fulfilled, if I can say it this way, sounds too Christian almost, but it's true. He fulfilled all those types. We, we, we offer sacrifices of praise that are acceptable to God because if we're saved, we are in Yeshua. We're in Christ. And that, he heads that up in verse chapter 4, which we're not going to get to. I think it's four, 5 or 6, but one of them. He just peppers it with in Christ, 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 in Christ. We are in Messiah. We are in Yeshua. He's fulfilled it all. We're outside the land. We can't do all of it. We do what we can. He's turning our hearts towards him. We tell the folks, you're right, we can't. What are you going to do about that? See, they think they have us. That's where, when it says that he came to fulfill the Torah, that's what it means. He fulfilled it. He carried it out. And now we live in his finished work outside the land. You got that look on your face that's worrying me today. Am I out of bounds here? Okay, all right. So, so Yeshua came, among other things, to fulfill the types, figures, realities of the temple life, which could not possibly or adequately be practiced outside the land. We can't. So he came and he fulfilled all that. Yes, he did. Now, the common dispersion diaspora would soon necessitate life outside the functioning capabilities of temple life in the land. That's why Peter says, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that ye should show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light until the next epochal and final moment. See, there's these epochal moments, as I call them. They come out of Egypt. That's an epochal moment. They get to Mount Sinai. They become a nation. They become a people. They, they get their own body of rules, their own body of, of laws. They, they now are a nation. Poof, epochal moment. I skip over a few, but they're kicked out of the land. They're in that dispersion. Epochal moment. Poof, epochal moment. They get brought back. They, they reestablish as much as they can. They're, they're now in the land. Poof, an epochal, mo epochal moment. Yeshua comes. And, and he just stirs up everything and, and trying to set it all right. And then he dies, and then there's an apocalypse moment. Boosh, Pentecost, as we call it. And a connection with the flame coming down, possibly with the flames at Mount Sinai, the giving of the law. Then that, that great apocalypse moment when they're kicked out of the land. Then the final epochal moment is he comes again. And those who of Ephraim and Judah have been brought into the one stick. Now Yeshua comes. He is the ruler. He is the head. He sets up his kingdom. He has fulfilled it all, but yet there will still be sacrifices looking back to it. And we will live under his rule and reign, living out the Torah fully as our hearts are crying out for now.
And you know who will be there among others? Abraham. And not that we're going to do this, but if I could go up to anybody, I'd run up to Abraham and just hug his neck and say, thank you for the faith that you had to leave Ur of the Chaldees, that fertile crescent, do this incredible trek, not even knowing where you're going, and your wife keeps saying, honey, where are we going? I don't know. I don't know. Turn on the GPS then. I said, I don't know where I'm going. I'm just going. And then he's asked to sacrifice his son. You know, we always think he had his hand up and it's going to thrust it in, and maybe so. But if it's a sacrifice, I think you slit the throat. But I think as soon as he went for that knife, God knew. And Abraham had to know. But it's the picture of the father who actually ultimately does sacrifice his son. And Abraham typified that. That's why the gospel was preached in Abraham beforehand, we're told. Oh, we don't want to hear that in our Bible colleges, that the gospel was preached, that message was preached through Abraham. See, I had these questions in Bible college. I had these questions since all these years in ministry, but no way to even begin to latch on to how to flesh any of it out until I leave the ministry, go to Arizona, meet Brad Scott, and here we are, and still trying to flesh all this out. One day Yeshua will return, establish the legal, righteous kingdom of rule, where we will forever be with our Lord in the land under his leadership. I'm not even going to continue, obviously. But I haven't got into what I wanted to talk about. But that's, that's Galatians chapter 3. Now, i got to say this. I feel like I, in college you always got that sticker that says, do, we do not necessarily endorse everything this book says. I'm telling you, I'm throwing out a lot of stuff here that is new to me. I've not read most of what I've said, if not all of what I've said. <laughs> so I always say, be cautious and careful with this because although I've had a few other sources... The conclusions that I'm drawn, and I'm not saying they're not out there. I think Tim Haig is probably the one that got me to uh, begin to understand what was, where it says it was added to, what was it added to? The Torah was, if I, added to, I gotta get my notes in my head, it's backwards, but the Torah was added to the Abrahamic covenant. You know, it says the Torah was added, added to what? And he says it was, in his opinion, added to the Abrahamic covenant. And that's kind of what sparked this. And I happened to be in Galatians, and that's why I got his commentary online and just read this section. And he talks about Abraham and, and, and the importance of Abraham and how um, the Torah was added to the Abrahamic covenant. And that just got me thinking about Abraham. It's like, wow, I never even thought about Abraham in relation to any of this. And so just getting that snippet from him, I can't blame any of this that I'm saying on him, got me to thinking, what is going on with Abraham and the law, and how does it fit? And we can't do what the temple says to do. It's all been fulfilled in Yeshua, but yet we have to get the message of salvation out there. Who's our model? Abraham. He was saved by grace 14 years before he was circumcised. 
He was a Gentile. He traveled all this way. He's, he's one of us. That's why he, he's our father. He's one of us. We are one of him. And so, you know, I think that's kind of all I want to say for today. And this is definitely open for discussion. And I'll close and Luke, you can say anything because I'm not, you know, I'm in essence, you know, the, the wife makes the meal for the first time and doesn't know how it's going to turn out. And then she'll sit around the table. Well, did you like it? Well, it maybe had too much of this. Could have used a little bit more of that. And everybody, you know, so this is kind of where I am. This is my meal for the first time presenting it. And, um, and of course, for me, it makes sense and logic because I've been in it. But I, I would love to uh, talk about it afterwards. So let's end there and pray. Father, I just, I thank you for this time. And personally, I do think there's something here with Abraham that we've not really been, at least me, catching, linking onto, connecting to how Abraham fits with everything and what is his role. And um, Father, and I say before the folks, you know my heart, I have no agenda in this at all. Uh, I don't get excited with throwing out something that is, in a sense, novel. And maybe it's not. It's, it's new to me. Uh, after, what, 40-something years of salvation, this is really the first time I've had it put together like this. So, um, so but you know my heart, uh, you know my, my mind, my spirit, and you also know I don't ever mind being wrong. And so, um, but I, I think there's something here, Father, and, and I think because of Abraham, we don't have to sweat any time a Christian brings up the law and the point of the law. And we don't have to sweat sometime when, when you know, Jews bring up Abraham and how they're the, the true seed of Abraham. You know, we don't have to sweat about this stuff. There are answers. It's not through the blood of any human. It's through grace, through faith, and the shed blood of Yeshua. So anyway, bless, I pray, in Yeshua's name. Amen. Hey